Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. Today on Econ Pop, we'll be talking about the Netflix original series, House of Cards. Joining me, as always, are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone. Paul Cantor, Steve Horowitz, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. We're, we're discussing a wonderful topic today. We're going to be talking about House of Cards and public choice theory. And I am excited about this for so many reasons. First, uh, I, I watched the old BBC version of House of Cards. Uh, that is the, the, the precursor to the Kevin Spacey one that everyone now knows and loves. There was this old Thatcher-era BBC one. And for anybody listening at home, if you ever want to feel British and powerful, drink about five fingers of scotch and watch the old BBC version. But I, I think it'll actually work quite well with House of Cards as well because there's so much power involved in it. I'm also delighted to talk to you guys about this today. Uh, Paul Cantor and Steve Horwitz are both brilliant, decorated men. I am a baritone. So usually I'm, I'm outmatched when, when, uh, when talking with you all intellectually. But what I can add to this conversation is that I actually did work for Congress. I'm a former congressional staffer. I was up there for a while. Uh, and so I've, I've thought a lot about public choice theory and about how uh, our, our, public inter- our public officials are, are working on our behalf. So I'm excited. Uh, and by the way, I loved House of Cards. I, I thought it was phenomenal. What did you two think? Agreed. This is the first time that I've you know, sort of binged on, a, on an online thing like this, right? And, and I was sort of you know, listening to other people talk about that show and other shows and how they'll watch 10 episodes you know, in a row or something and thinking, you're crazy. And no, I get it now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and uh, it was wonderful. And it's a, it's a, I'm sure we'll talk about just up, great performances. Kevin Spacey is just, just brilliant. And uh, I think uh, up and down, a really powerful lesson, if somewhat exaggerated, about the dangers of, of, of politics and what public choice theory can help us understand. Paul? Well, I don't want to rain on people's parade, but I didn't like the show, and I thought Spacey was awful. He couldn't keep a consistent southern accent from one <laughs> minute to the next. And I, uh, so, uh, and I think the show was just a caricature. Uh, and anyway, but, you know, it's interesting, and I'm happy to talk about it. But uh, I, I was not tempted to binge. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, Paul, were you watching it going, well, this is just ridiculous. We have really hardworking members of Congress. They're all doing a great job. I'm part of that three percent of the approval approval rating for no, the country. No, 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 I was not. Uh, you know, I. If you really want my opinion, I think the problem is uh, that it, it attributes the political problem too much to corrupt people and the wrong people, and not to the ideologies that uh, govern the people that run the country. Uh, uh, you know, to me, the undercurrent of the show would be if we had better politicians, we'd have good government and then the government could run everything. And I, I well, think it's just the reverse. Uh, uh, I, I suspect that people like the Kevin Spacey character, uh, are responsible for better government than, say, people like uh, Barack Obama. So, anyway. Uh, I'll, I'll say, I want to follow that up because I think there's two things there. I, I think, um, there's no evidence to me, Paul. The, the producers don't give us anything explicit that suggests that. 
because there aren't any contrasts. There's no West Wing characters here. Okay. Even the one guy who's behind the education bill early on is just kind of he's kind of you know he's a caricature himself, right? So it's well, not, that's my problem with the whole show is that yeah. everybody's a caricature. Yeah, and I, I think and I have my, spent time in Washington and the people aren't as bad right. as, as that. Uh, right, and and I I will agree that that the that the characters are exaggerated. But I think, and I, the other problem that some folks have pointed out is they're actually too competent, right? I mean, they're, <laughs> they're able to pull these things off in, in ways um, that don't often, I mean, you know, in the first season, Kevin Spacey's characters, I, I, I'm, I'm, well, Paul's not going to binge, but I'll, you know, his, yeah, yeah. his long-term Spoil plan begins to, begins to unravel a bit in ways he didn't anticipate. But in general, right, it's a little too, you know, they, they're just a little too competent. I think what we're really run by, as Paul suggests, are, are self-interested, incompetent, uh, ideologically misguided people. <laughs> and, and certainly here we, we see the, the self-interest part of that puzzle, but we don't see the incompetent and we don't see, we don't have any, you know, any sense of the ideologically misguided. Um, that said, I think... I think if you look carefully, uh, there are there's enough in here to be able to talk about the ways in which oh, the yes. very structure of politics yes. produces the kind of corruption and the kinds of behavior that that we see. Whatever one thinks about the you know the producer's idea of the solution, Steve, I, I, I well, like you know, the fact that you you one of the unrealistic elements you find of the program is the general competency of the politicians. Yeah. I think that that's yeah. funny that you're you know people will watch Star Trek and go, wait a minute, you know that deck fifty four is not there, and you're you're watching going, wait a minute, all the federal employees are there at five oh three on a Friday. This is nonsense. <laughs> no way that would well, I mean, happen. Well, what I really mean is that that they're competent in the sense. That they, that they have these evil machinations and they pull them off. I mean, you know, Spacey's character, Frank, Frank Underwood, again, I don't want to spoil things too much, but, but by the end of the first season, he's very close to his goal. I mean, it's gotten complicated, but he's very close to a very complicated, you know, sort of set of things that had to happen and they all seem to work out just the way he planned. And, and you know, there's not a sense of, of, of sort of, uh, I mean, all of this is harming the public. But within the within politics' own sort of game, uh, they 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 are just they're able to play it. They're able to see all the bounces in a way that I don't think is quite realistic. Yeah, I, well, I think you're you're right on both counts. And actually, to to go back to Paul's earlier point, uh, while I did not draw the implicit conclusion that if we had better people in politics, politics would be better, I do think that that is a terribly misguided and nearly universal belief in the United yep. States that the reason we have bad government is because we have bad people in government. And it's why periodically you get these sort of um, oftentimes populist revolutionary movements where it's like, well, the uh, like where I'm from in Oklahoma, we just need more religious people in Congress. You know, if people were more spiritual. Um, and the thing is, that doesn't actually affect their ability to do basic math. Uh, you might be a really good Methodist, which is wonderful, but if you can't balance the budget, you're very poor. In the exact same capacity that I don't really care whether an airline pilot's having an affair or not. Uh, I feel bad for his wife, but it doesn't affect his competency as a pilot. And to get to a deeper level uh, that I think both of you were alluding towards, the problem is itself systemic. And one of the things that is systemically problematic that very few people grasp is the idea of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. And every member of Congress is doing that. And that's part of why everybody likes their member of Congress. Uh, 
across the board, um, districts always like their congressmen in terms of polls, but they hate Congress as a whole. And this is true for every single district throughout the United States. The congressman is very popular because he's bringing home the bacon, right? He's, he's the guy that's going out and bringing your tax dollars back to get you that treadmill for shrimp and, and money to teach uh, dolphin sign language and all these different things, as opposed to these other crooks and liars. Uh, and yeah. People, well, military ba- military bases yeah, is military, a issue. Yeah, yeah and, and yeah. the show is good because it shows the operation of Pork Barrel and yep. how uh, you have to trade favors to a particular yep. district in order to get congressmen on board for the education bill you want. Of course, the Affordable Care Act was a perfect example of that. Uh, so, uh, you know, it does show uh, some important things about how Congress functions or misfunctions. Yes, absolutely. And the, yeah, the military bits all over the place. I mean, if, if, if there were a military base that made helium-powered zeppelins, that congressman would fight to the death to keep yep. that military base open. And, and importantly, right, that, that, that's what Congress hears, right? I mean, and so, so whenever we have a bill, you know, a spending bill coming forward, or in this case, a closure bill, it's the people who benefit from that government activity always have an incentive to make a lot of noise. And so it, it sounds like people think, well, this is then we should do this. But it's really, as you say, it's the concept of that small group of beneficiaries who have the incentive uh, to really to really knock on the doors and, 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 and make all kinds of noise. And as Paul said, I just note that I thought one of the really good things in the series was sort of really ripping off I'm this mixed metaphor ripping off the mask of how the sausage is made right that, that we you know we really do see I'm one of my favorite bits early on and I can't Paul was probably in the first few episodes where they where you know he where Underwood locks the nine interns in the room and says write the education bill right mm-hmm. and and so it's or it's staffers I guess not interns yeah. but it's this you know it's this sort of notion that this huge and I, and I have no doubt that the Affordable Care Act was written this way where you know some assistant to the assistant to the assistant spent a week in a room eating you know McDonald's for a week writing this major piece of legislation that then Congress votes on without ever reading it, right? And, and before we even get there, we see all this negotiation with the teachers' unions and everybody else. I mean, it's a, just a, you know, the contrast to either the West Wing or Saturday morning, you know, I'm just a bill sitting here on Capitol Hill, uh, it was, I thought, you know, really powerful. Well, I thought that scene, though, was, uh, first of all, unrealistic. The suggestion was... Uh, was that these really bright, idealistic kids fresh out of college would write the bill. In fact, the education unions would have written the bill. And lawyers would have did by the time it got there. Yes, no, that's true. But, uh, you know, that's what I talk about when I say I think this series hints at the idea that there could be idealism in politics. It's just frustrated by the system. And again, I would say a bigger threat than any of this corruption is the idealism itself. Yeah, and and something that I I point out, like uh, when we talk about um, these special interests coming in, uh, I I am of the opinion that most politicians are, are definitively acting on behalf of special interests and that they believe they are doing a just, decent, and morally uplifting thing. Um, when, you, when you talk to the average American and they, they find out that a congressman from Iowa um, managed to secure $300 million in agricultural subsidies for, for wheat in Iowa or corn in Iowa, he sounds like a crook. But from his perspective, 
he grew up with a bunch of farmers. He's protecting their way of life. He's, he's assisting them. And the problem is when you magnify that over 453 different elected officials all trying to do the same thing, you have a lot more money coming out of that system than going into the system. And everybody thinks they're doing the right thing, and the voters think they're doing the right thing. Um, and this is kind of where I want to get into the weeds with you guys. I, I am not of the opinion that, that really politicians are responsible for the sorry state of affairs in America. I think that being a democracy, that we, the, the electorate, are ultimately responsible for allowing this to happen. Uh, but there are different theories about the, the effects of democracy and the limits of democracy. Uh, something that I've been reading about recently was Kenneth Arrow's impossibility theorem. But I am not eloquent nor intelligent enough to describe it. And I'm curious if either of you can weigh in. It's been a long time since I looked at that stuff. But, but essentially what he tries to show is that voting processes will produce irrational results, right, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, I think one of the ways to think about what you just said, right, is that, that ultimately the damage, the damage that politicians can do depends upon the structural incentives of the institutions within which they operate. And those institutions depend upon the ideological beliefs of voters and opinion leaders and so on. So in that sense, right, you know, if, if we all believed that government should be limited, we would have institutions that limited government and the damage that politicians can do is it would be dramatically minimized. So you know, when we, we point to politicians as the source of trouble – they're sources of trouble because they're operating within a structure that has given them this power and this latitude and created incentives for them to engage in behavior that leads to problematic consequences. I, you know, uh, it's a good contrast to how we think about entrepreneurship in the marketplace where entrepreneurs pursuing their self-interest through a different set of institutions and structural incentives lead to benefits for other people. So, but, but as Paul was saying earlier, right, that's why the ideas matter here and people's beliefs matter because they're the things that condition those institutions and, and how we think about the role of government, which creates the opportunity then for, you know, for us to believe falsely that, that, that you know, high-minded people can do great things when the reality, once those structures of power are in place, you're not going to get high-minded people in there or if you get them in there, they're going to follow those incentives and do and engage in behavior that's going to be problematic. Yeah, let's not remember corrupt, not corrupt necessarily. Yeah, yeah, let's remember that the United States was not designed as an unlimited democracy. That the whole idea behind the constitution uh, was limited government, uh, many forms of checks on the power of government, the the separation of powers, the federal system itself, uh, the enumeration of Congress's power, president's power, and so on. Uh, the uh, uh, founding fathers, uh, people like James Madison, uh, Thomas Jefferson, were very suspicious of government. Uh, they were trying to come up with a system that would limit the damage government could do. And the sad thing is how over the years, uh, this system of uh, limited government has broken down. And especially the federal government has assumed far more power vis-a-vis the states than was ever intended by the original notion of the United States of America, a federated system of government. Paul, I, I read the Constitution one time. And- <laughs> What that people in Congress had? <laughs> As I recall, the Interstate Commerce Clause clearly says 
Uh, I quote, Congress may do whatever the hell it wants. Isn't that uh, the – I'm, I'm getting into the yeah, weeds. I completely agree. Yeah, well, uh, no. It says Congress shall regulate interstate commerce. What that meant was that there will be no uh, uh, tariff barriers between the states. It, it was the Supreme Court that interpreted that to mean that Congress could regulate anything that produced a good that then traveled across state lines. But that obviously was not the intention of that original proposition. This is right. And even so that word, on, even on that word regulate. Call, you, you want to say that you do not think the Interstate Commerce Clause was just to enable Congress to do whatever it wanted with no restrictions whatsoever. All right. Yes, yeah, so I will go on. And, you know, the, the Supreme Court has even recognized that in a few recent decisions where it said, hey, this is going too far. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not until the late 1930s that you start to get that interpretation from the Supreme Court of what that uh, power means. And that's, and that's where I have two points about this. One, even that word regulate, we think of it one way, but it also means to make regular. And, and, and the sense in which, you know, Congress's job was, as Paul said, to get those barriers out of the way and to have a sort of, you know, uniform and open system of laws to allow people to engage in interstate commerce is another way of reading that. The other point I make is that, as Paul said, a lot of this comes out of changes in the 1930s. And again, here's where ideas matter, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's not that human beings who went into politics or human beings on, let's put it this way, that human beings on average have suddenly become more corrupt now than they were X number of years ago. That's not true, right? It's when ideas change in ways that, that create opportunities and structures of power is when we begin to see those with a comparative advantage of using that power often to serve their own ends, you know, begin to do so and, become, and, and sort of migrate to it. There's always going to be bad people in the world. The question is, how do we, as, as, as Hayek and Hume you know, said it, we need institutions that limit the damage that can be done by bad people. Mm-hmm. And that was, to, to go back to Paul's earlier point about, you know, kind of the founding of the republic and, and keeping it limited uh, previously, most of mankind for the vast majority of its existence had lived under the capricious whim of some kind of king or dictator or warlord. And if you had a really benign one, maybe it was okay for a while, but if you didn't, there was a lot that guy could do that would go wrong. And and that was one of the ideas to impose so many many limitations. And uh, one of the things that that I keep returning to is that I, I think for the average voter, uh, it's it's easier to assess someone as a scumbag like Frank Underwood than it is to look at, say, agricultural subsidies and go, wait a minute, this doesn't actually help small farmers. It just helps a really big agribusness. This is systemically flawed. Uh, it, it's it's easier to personify problems than it is to assess them on, on a grand level, I think. Yeah, that's just the point I was making. And, of course, that's always going to be the problem with a TV show or a movie. It personalizes every issue. It makes every issue an issue of persons, personalities. uh, And really, in most political cases, the issue is systemic. It's institutional. uh, It does not turn. uh, You know, frankly, television acts as if the president is a king. Yeah. Uh, it always wants to make everything an issue of an individual power. Well, this president thinks he is one, so that I seems know, pretty I realistic. Know, I know. Uh, <laughs> well, one other, one other quick, one other quick thing to add here. You know, the thing about that's interesting about House of Cards is they have a, Underwood. You know, he's been in Congress a long time. He keeps getting reelected, right? Mm-hmm. And and he's so 
seems right to portray to the viewer so obviously bad. But there is this interesting s- sequence later in the first season where he has to go back to his home district, right, to deal with the water tower thing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And that's and actually in the early episodes. Is it in the okay? Yeah. I couldn't remember how early it was, but but okay, you can then see, and it's all phony, and we see it as phony, and and all that, but. That's the thing, right? You, you can see how this guy comes back home and does the little things that presumably personalize his, you know, his, his, what, what he's doing is saying to his constituents, I'm your personal power broker that can solve your personal problems, right, uh, in these sorts of ways. And, and that, you know, that's how good politicians, that's how bad people who are good politicians keep getting reelected, right? And on one hand, you're manipulating all this power, but you know how to portray it in a way that your constituents think is being, you know, is, is doing what they believe elected officials should do. And, and the fact they believe that's what elected officials should do is the ultimate problem. Yeah, I, I think you're right about all those points. And I, uh, people, I think, forget that the, the chief factor in becoming a member of Congress is likability. Uh, what, what I was always astounded by... Well, and money. Yeah, that, that as well. Um, what, what always astounded me, I would talk to uh, not necessarily our constituents when I was in Congress, but just random constituents in the elevator, and I'd say, who are you visiting? Where are you from? And you know, what, what do you think of them? And they always had the exact same response, was that they were, they were amazed, uh, just astounded at how normal this, this person was. And they'd sort of come in expecting a guy in a top hat reading The New Yorker, drinking you know, orphan tears out of a brandy snifter or something. And, you know, it turned out to be this guy that, you know, his kid's on the football team, too. And, you know, he's he's a swell dude and, and he seems very likable. And again, he's trying to help them bring all these problems or uh, fix their problems in their district and, and bring money to their district and subsidies. And when you when you magnify that all over the place, it, it's not a, a model that works. You're taking money from everybody and spending it on everybody. We could just keep that money ourselves, actually, and probably do better with it. Yeah, uh, and w- w- one quick thing I'd add, too, uh, is that. What we also don't see in the series is is alternative, right? I and mean, with one minor exception, we don't kind of see what other ways there are for human beings to interact, except through this sort of manipulation and favor trading and what what Ayn Rand would have called the aristocracy of pull and all this. The one exception is the rib joint, right? Freddie's rib joint, mm-hmm. which is this little sort of oasis of the market and of sort of peaceful commerce and civil society that even Frank recognizes as an oasis in a way, right? And his relationship with Freddie is this, you know, be- this sort of mutual benefit of exchange thing. Now, Freddie's not perfect, but, but I, I, you know, part of me wished that we had in ways more, more contrast uh, to sort of see that this, this, to sort of bring out the structural points that we've been talking about. Um, Steve, I think that's a great point. And actually, I'd like to to highlight that difference there. We, we've, we've got the rib joint, which is a, a business, and we've got the congressman who is government. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not an anarchist. I do think there should be a government, but I think it should be very tiny. And they, they do function very differently. It's not that they're just um, competing services for the same goods. They're fundamentally different. Now, if let, let's say that uh, Congressman Underwood uh, – is is in in, in favor uh, in, in charge of some sort of relief program for his district that is passing out um, food. He's he's on a, a committee um, that's that's giving out uh, food stamps. It's giving out uh, steaks or whatever, just some sort of program. Um, if more people get onto that program, that's problematic for him as a government official because that means there are more people that he has to disperse resources between. Now, conversely, Freddie, if he has more customers, that's a great thing. That's fantastic. 
you know, if, if we get into public transportation, things like that, if, if you're on a limited government budget and you have somebody coming in and, and adding to the amount of demand, it's bad for government and it's problematic and it makes the system work. In a private sector model, it's great because that, that's, that's giving you more profit incentive that allows you to expand the scope of the business. And then the, the well, inverse of this is that if, um, if say, Freddie is going to open up a stake corporation and he's able to cut his spending costs one year, he's going to be rewarded for it. Whereas in government, if you're an agency and you cut spending costs the following year, they go, oh, that's great. We'll just not give you any more money. And so you really don't have much of an incentive to cut back on the amount of spending you're doing as opposed to the private sector. But, but notice those two are in tension with each other, right? I mean, it, in the sense that, that that might be a reason why you actually want to create more dependence right? In, in your program is to be able to go back and say, look, I got all these people who need food, customers, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. I, need more mo- I need more budget and power, right? Mm-hmm. It's right. The, sort of the inverse side of the other. You, you don't want to cut costs because you're quite right. They'll cut your, bu- your budget. But, the, but you don't want to solve your problem either, right? I mean, that's the really key thing about government is, it, is that politicians have very few incentives to actually solve to have agencies that solve the problems they claim to be solving because then they are out of business, right? Yeah. When you solve a problem in the market, if the problem is there's no good ribs in town, you solve the problem. Here's good ribs. You profit, they profit, everyone's good. doesn't work that way you know, in government. If you solve the problem, you're out of business, you lose your job. Absolutely. Yeah, I, one thing that the show does demonstrate is the issue of sheer power. And that's an area where I think rational choice theory actually misses out on something. It makes it sound as if these uh, politicians are acting on pure rational economic incentives. There's that moment when Underwood says of the lawyer for the uh, uh, multinational corporation, oh, he's just interested in money. I'm interested in power. Yes. Uh, uh, and power is real. Power is like the rock. Power is what lasts. And I think in that sense, the show is smarter uh, than a lot of pure economic interpretations of politics, that it understands that there are different kinds of people. And some people are not interested in their economic advantage. They just want to rule over other people. Uh, and that's what they enjoy. Now, that's in a sense an economic uh, incentive. It's what they want. But it's very different from seeing it in terms of dollars and cents. And that's when you get people who are perfectly happy increasing the number of dependents. In the world of people dependent on the federal government, uh, you could say that about the whole uh, Affordable Care Act, that really it's not designed to solve the problem of insurance. It's designed to expand greatly the number of people who are dependent on the government and who will then vote for these politicians because they need them for their health care as well as everything else. So in that sense, I do like the show that it keeps the distinction between power hunger and other kinds yeah. of, of seeking out of goods. There's a, there's a line in the very last episode of the first season where, where Frank is talking about the, the, the businessman Tusk who sort of you know, is vetting him for the VP job and who's a, you know, the John McGraney character. And, and Underwood says, he doesn't measure his worth in private jets, but in purchased souls. And that's the same kind of theme, right? That it's about power ultimately. Well, that's Mephistopheles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is very chilling, and and all of it uh, to uh, you, you all got very eloquent and and, uh, and dipped into the kind of visceral emotional thing, which I appreciate. I, I do want to mention one phrase that we've we've kept absent the conversation, and that's public choice theory. 
uh, which which I think is highlighted well in House of Cards and public choice theory. Um, my my definition is basically that politicians remain human after being elected to office. They don't. No, no, nobody becomes a Vulcan automatically when they become a congressman. They still have all the same wants, needs, and desires that they had as private citizens. And uh, some of those wants and needs are uh, corrupt. Some of those wants and needs are good. And then some of those wants and needs are uh, I don't, what, we, what we might say are, I, I guess, good intentioned, but um, bad aggregately. And uh, and that's something people should keep in mind when we look at the United States as a system of government, as opposed to an assortment of personalities. That's right. I mean, we have to. We should assume that 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 people, as you say, don't change fundamentally when they go into politics. And so the question is, what well, you know, politics is another way in which people can engage in exchange activity and interact with each other to achieve their own personal ends. And the question is. Under what again, sort of institutional structures and and and, and, stru- and incentive structures, will their pursuit of their self-interest within politics cause more or less damage? And and does the pursuit of self-interest, especially within an unconstrained political process, uh, you know, lead to all kinds of problems that the pursuit of self-interest, say, in the marketplace or in civil society, does not? So it's that comparative question. It's not about differences in people. And as Paul said earlier, drama, I think, inherently focuses on the people, right? It's much harder to portray the way in which structure channels people's behavior in ways that are problematic or beneficial. Uh, but, but again, that, that's the question. The people don't change. There's Frank Underwood's out there in the world of, 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 you know, uh, of markets, but to satisfy their own ends, they have to behave differently and they have to please others, at least in a, in a genuine competitive marketplace, to get money right or to get the power that money can bring they have to actually provide things that consumers want and that's not the case in politics wonderful steve i think it's a great point uh, paul we're going to be wrapping up do you want to say anything before we leave well i'll just say that uh it's good to remember that politicians are people just like us but it's also good to remember that they're a different breed these are people who like to run other people's lives i always tell people think of the guy that ran for class president in your high school <laughs> wasn't he a complete jerk uh, and now you're voting for him for president of the United States. Uh, that is, uh, these are, you know, in some sense, they're human beings and they act on economic motives and so on. But they've got something else in them. Uh, they like power. They like to rule. They like to run other people's lives. And to me, that's more frightening than whether they're corrupt in some economic sense or gaming the system or something like that. Uh, these are people who just want to be able to tell you what to do. And that's why we need to limit their power as severely as possible. I agree with you, and I think there's a, a Thomas uh, Sowell quote that I'm, I'm probably mangling, but he said that the sorts of people who enjoy having meetings probably shouldn't be the ones running them, uh, yep. and uh, I think that applies to government in large part. Uh, well, well, Thomas More, More said that in the Utopia uh, centuries before, where he said that the only people are allowed to hold office are people who won't run for it. Uh, yep. <laughs> actually, Plato yep. says the Republic, too. Well, then, on, on that note, uh, we're going to be finishing up. Uh, I am immediately, right after this, going to go watch the entire season two of House of Cards, delightedly so, while drinking whiskey. And on the note of Thomas More, I will be writing in Paul Cantor and Steve Horwitz onto the ballots in their respective states in hopes that they will inadvertently be drafted to Congress. 
<laughs> if, if elected, I will resign. <laughs> Wonderful. That's a great bumper sticker. Steve if Paul. elected, I will faint. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, Paul, it was a pleasure talking to you both. And uh, once again, I'm smarter for it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Econ Pop Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about our show or to visit our archives, go to econstories.tv. To watch the Econ Pop web series, go to youtube.com slash econstories. It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.